0: focusing on what matters to you and your neighbors. Welcome to ResistBot Live. Hey, everybody. This is the actual real episode one of ResistBot Live, and we're so glad to have you joining us. Uh, I'm Scott McTaggart. This is the beginning of a a big, fun adventure, ResistBot having its own Sunday show. We are going to do it a little bit differently than other people do it. Uh, We are volunteers trying to contribute. We all have regular jobs, and, and we are struggling along with you to understand what's going on in the world, in the political landscape. And I think that what you'll find with the show that we put together for you is that it's Focused on you, focused not on the soap opera or the horse race or any of the things that make life sort of more combative, but instead finding out what your neighbors are writing to the ResistBot platform about, how it is that they're asking for your help, uh, and, and who's co-signing those petitions, those things that are important to them. So today is September 26th, 2021. Uh, Very excited to have you all. We've been planning this for months. Thank you so much for all your support. The next move for us is going to be explaining to you how we operate. ResistBot is a nonprofit where all of you participate in the civic experience writing your letters, reaching out. Find it at resist.bot if you're not already familiar with us. And and I'd like to start introducing some of the people that are going to be on the show and, and lead into today's topic, which is one of our most popular petitions. We are going to be talking today about SSI and the Demolish Disabled Poverty Campaign. First, I'd like to introduce Susan Stutz, who is my right hand on this, head of content and research here at ResistBot. Let's bring Susan up. And uh, Susan, can you hear me?
1: I can hear you, Scott. How are you?
0: Well, I'm waiting for technology to betray us on the first episode, and I think we'll be all right. (laughs) But you know, I mean, we're just, again, volunteers with jobs trying to make a good show. And, uh, you know, there's there's a fair amount of finger crossing going on over here. Uh, where I'm are you sitting, sitting
1: right on. I'm sitting on fingers crossed right now. Actually, <laughs> I am in the Treasure Coast in sunny South Florida, and um, as Scott mentioned, I do the content research, writing for the bot. And today we're going to talk about SSI, the inadequacy of it, and. Um, the efforts to bring it up into the modern times. And it started with a petition by a user by the name of Matthew. And that petition has well over 73,000 signatures on it at this point from people all over the country who find it to be a very important issue, whether it's personal to them or not. And there's a couple of pathways towards um, solving the problems with social security insurance. And that is uh, through the reconciliation bill that Congress is working on and through the Social Security Restoration Act. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today.
0: Well, I'm really glad for the work that you've put in on the research here. it's important for everyone to understand the petitions come in and we don't necessarily we don't pretend to be experts. I, while we've been doing all of this, we've been talking about, you know, sort of like our job is to work with the audience and learn about the topic. Uh, we're going to do the best we can to facilitate a good conversation, bring in people that can comment on it. Uh, really glad to have you here for the journey you know, and all the writing and research that you've been doing. Uh, just out of curiosity, how did you get associated with ResistBot in the first place?
1: I started using ResistBot and started writing letters in May of 2017. And I uh, then I would take my letters. The users, I'm sorry, the volunteers at ResistBot would then take letters and submit them to the newspapers. And I had some really good fortune in that regard in the early days where my newspaper was fond of my letters. So they published them. And so I got an email from another volunteer named Donna, and she reached out to me. And asked me if I wanted to be a volunteer. And so I jumped in and I started working on letters to the editor and submitting them to newspapers in every state in the country. And it kind of morphed from there. I worked on uh, our vote keyword package. And then I worked on the COVID keyword package. And those are some pretty big lifts. I worked on those with other volunteers. And all along, I've been writing for the bot. Uh, doing articles on our website for our blog, and doing research, and it this was just the next best thing. I got the invite, you know, from you to chat about it, and
0: uh, I'm yeah. super I excited. Mean, it would have happened super for you excited. One or other. It would have happened. You're very <laughs> smooth on camera. Really glad to have you. Now, thank you. I'm going to add somebody to our conversation here. Uh, let's bring in Melanie Dion. I absolutely adore Melanie. She is a huge addition for us in understanding the liveness of this whole experience. Melanie, how are you? You are muted is how you are.
2: I told you this is what happened. This is what I get for trying to be polite. Um,
0: Good morning. Good
2: afternoon. Hey.
0: Well, if it makes you feel any better, I've used my knees have pushed my little um, uh, desk contraption here a, a few inches out of place. So mm-hmm. you know, there's yet another like production thing to keep I was the first one to make a production mistake, not you. How's that sound?
2: I feel good about that. I feel <laughs> better about myself and your misfortune. You see, don't
0: say I never did anything for you, all right? Um, I appreciate that, you've done plenty. So, so Melanie, the reason that I wanted you here is because you are one of the sharpest people on your toes when it comes to understanding sort of where is a conversation? How is it going? You're going to help us, like I said, lean into the liveness of ResistBot Live because you understand what the audience is saying, what it means. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you sitting right now? You know, How did you you know, sort of get familiar with ResistBot in the first place?
2: Um, I am currently broadcasting from Phoenix, Arizona. I'm a New Orleans native. I just evacuated for Hurricane Ida and decided I want to stay here until... There's garbage pickup and things like that. So, um, I'll, I've, I've been here for about a month. And um, how I got—I've—I've uh, I've, I've been aware of ResistBot as far because I love um, yelling at people and telling them what to do. So, obviously, you know, I've, I've utilized it for you know letters writing my congressman, and things like that. So, when you reached out to me, I was—I was very excited because yes, I do. I do bring the live to things sometimes. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy to help, happy to be a part a credit. Um, I don't know anybody who's sharper <laughs> up on their toes. And I really
0: needed that for this show, for someone to really know sort of again, like what they read the first time they read it, you know, what does it mean? And And you're going to help us with what people are saying
2: in real yeah. time. Yeah, and we're, we're already getting, we've got Ellen, who's a proud supporter, and she, thank you, Susan, for what you do, and um, Paula and Janie, they both, uh, Paula says spot rocks, Janie loves ResistBot, so mm-hmm. Um, If I mispronounce your names, please, I'm from New Orleans and we say things weird, so don't take it personally. I'm very sorry. (laughs)
0: I'm sitting in Western Pennsylvania. The accent here isn't anything to write home about either.
2: None of the words sound the same anywhere in this country, so that's just, you know. So I do I do want to invite everyone to
0: engage with us live. Uh if there's something that you know you want to bring up to, as this conversation goes on and we get to the main topic of SSI and demolished disabled poverty, please just pop that into the into the comments and between Melanie and our producer. We will get to as much of it as we can. Uh again, the, the great benefit of having this be a live show, at least for this 1 p.m. on Sunday portion of it. Is that, yeah, if you have thoughts, you can put them right into the chat box yeah. and, and and we can jump on top of them. Uh, I'm wondering if I might have Athena, Athena Foulet, come to the stage. Please pick up a yellow courtesy phone. How are you, Athena?
3: Great. How are you doing,
0: Scott? How's I'm it going, so glad well? you're
3: Susan? Hey. Thanks for having so, me. So, so I know here.
0: you hate this. I, I know you detest being called this, but you said it like a long time ago and it stuck. You said, I've been with the bot from the top and I can't stop thinking about it whenever I think about you. <laughs> um, and I remember way back when, when you were hand delivering the letters that ResistBot created into the offices on the Hill. Yeah, uh,
3: that was Actually, it popped up as a memory recently. That's about four years ago, last around September, that we did that. And um, so it's funny. I actually do have experience being on camera for the bot. We were grabbing thousands of letters and charging into congressional offices to make sure that our constituents or the constituent voices were being heard by our elected officials. So happy to be here. Um, yes, in my bot journey, I read about it. And I'm trying to remember that first time I, I, I really heard about this amazing device that is trying to bridge the gap between constituent and elected officials. And as soon as I uh, learned more about it, at that point, Jason's email, I think, was super available in public. I just blasted them saying, I'm in Washington, D.C. If you need boots on the ground, uh, I'm happy to step in in whatever capacity I can. So
0: here we are now. For me, it was interesting because they said, oh, you have to meet Athena. She's going to be great for this show. She really understands what's happening Uh, in DC, because that's where you're sitting right now, but also just in terms of like what the evolution has been, what users say that they're interested in, those kinds of things. And then we met first, you know, first time on Zoom. And I said, oh, I that's the lady that used to drop things off at the offices. I remember way back when.
3: Sensible shoes and uh, luggage luggage racks to haul those letters in. No, um, it was a very interesting time to be alive, to 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 put it mildly.
0: So the reason that I really think that the audience will benefit from you being here is you have a unique focus on what has come before. You know some of the petitions that have come through Resistbot. You've again, you've personally put shoe leather into getting some of these campaigns, you know, across the finish line. And I'm curious, you know, as we as we start to transition maybe into talking more about the the core topic here, what does this remind you of? What does it feel like?
3: Um, the I feel that oftentimes when these issues pop up there's this there's this tendency to like slam on the gas and then sort of back up back off a little bit. And mm-hmm. I feel like I feel that resist spot is unique in that um, as we're able to continue to remind people of different petitions that are really trending, as we're able to have that sort of immediate access to these audiences that have our users who have signed up to receive these kind of updates. We are uniquely qualified to help organizations, organizers, and activists to really drive messages home in an efficient and timely manner. So in the case of today's topic, I think um, we have a real opportunity here to to advocate and to shift messaging in, in, an, in an important direction. So I'm glad that uh, the, the product of the ResistBot specifically is is really as um flexible and, and uh, there's this Minutemen sort of uh, metaphor that we use in that this country is founded on this ability to sort of pivot and kind of change directions as necessary to be able to, you know, live to the fullest aspiration of what we're supposed to be. So I feel the, the bot does that well and bringing, being able to convene the voices who are leading these discussions is something that I'm really excited we'll be able to do now moving forward through this
0: this so, quick question for you, and then uh, and and we'll we'll move on. When you were delivering, and you've been talking to the people that are the change makers, was the feeling that normal people were really behind some of these letters, or was it was the feeling that like the normal people had kind of checked out, like the people with a life and you know I don't know, let's say like a job and kids and errands and chores whatnot? Do they feel like Really, the the voters are engaged at this point on the Hill, or do they feel something different? So deliveries
3: haven't really happened since the pandemic started. Like Things are very tight up on the Hill at the moment, except on January 6th, where apparently they let anybody in. But anyhow, um, for as far as what it was like when I did do the deliveries, yes, I think uh, I'm fortunate to have built a bit of a rapport and relationship with folks on the Hill. Definitely the security guards, when we're walking in, there was five boxes of letters to deliver but what is power especially powerful about the bot is that when you send in your information your name your address you are a direct constituent we make their lives so much easier to be able to know that this is a we validate all of the, the users so they, they know their actual legit correspondence from constituents and um they were very grateful that it would be so organized because I could hand them a stack and say, this is specifically about the Supreme Court. This is specifically about DACA. This is gonna be specifically about that. And then, so yes, in some ways we did make the staffers' lives easier. And did we change minds? Um, yes, we have examples of, of representatives for sure saying that listing the actual numbers, I have received 2000 blah, blah, blah numbers specifically on this issue from my constituents. So yes, I, I, I do. Believe that we have a reputation of like legitimacy and honesty when, when they know that we can validate our users, and I do feel that um, through the over nine million users that we have, that we've definitely made an important um, we made some important strides in being able to have an issue and get that delivered in a matter of like I think the turnaround was forty eight hours. We would turn on the the um, the request the channel to receive these messages on a particular issue, cut it off. I'd run to the printers, get it printed, and it would literally be on your senator or representative's table within 48 hours. And that um, that was something completely new and exciting.
0: I can't help but smile every time you mention 9 million users. That makes me happy every time I hear it come across my eardrums. So um, for me, I am most impressed just the fact that those normal people don't have to spend as much time typing So, so think about the life cycle of this very quickly. Like you become aware of an issue, you you become aware of how it impacts you. Where do you square up time to sit down, figure out where to address, compose, edit, send? A lot of times I feel like things really don't get the response from what I would call like normal people, because you have to remember that you want to do that when you get home and then you actually have to make time for it. And again, you have a job and you have maybe little humans at home and you have, you know, pets as well and there are all different kinds of things that are pulling at your time. So, uh, I I'm, I'm really excited about that. I'm also very very excited because uh and and he hates when I use his honorific, but I just feel like it adds something. Dr. Joseph Kuhill coming to us uh, from the Professor Buzzkill History Podcast, which has many different distinctions, one of which being that it is legitimate curriculum in some <laughs> educational institutions. Let's bring Joe onto the screen. Joe, I promise I won't doctor you to death, but I don't have my doctorate, so I'm super cool with it. I, I love the fact that you you have this, and frankly, like I feel a little bit more credible as a result of you being on the screen now. <laughs> well, thank you, uh, thank you, but but make sure. Everyone knows that it's not an
4: honorific. It's, it was these are a real earned degree. There are plenty of honorary doctorates. I,
0: oh, out hey, come there. on, man. So did, it's did it is technically me? my
4: title, but as I someone who it runs
0: a, I thought honorific meant something different then. I, I'm I, as someone again. who
4: runs a, sh- a show called Professor Buzzkill, I can hardly complain about what you, you use as my name. <laughs>
0: All right. But, you know, like I just like I already feel like I'm just not measuring up to my panel and that's not great. So. um, I'm curious, Joe, you know, how long have you been studying history? How long have you been teaching? I'm curious, you know, sort of like give us an, an idea of of how deep you've gone into the topics that we're going to be covering on the show.
4: I've been studying history for over thirty years, maybe thirty five years. I've been teaching for twenty five years. Uh, and uh, I, I I come to this partly as someone who, for my professional training, did modern Europe his, European history. Uh, and and but now with my show over the last six years, I've had to dig into a great deal of modern American history. And I'm sort of rediscovering my own native land by uh through my podcast and through the work that i have to do for the podcast so i'm much more energetic and much more interested in in these topics than i think i would have been if if we did the, if i hadn't you know gone to um gone to the popular sphere and tried to run a podcast let me let me just say quickly scott that and and to everyone on on ResistBot that you know this is one of these things that i i've been following ResistBot for a long time obviously but it's one of these things that we in academia like to tell our students about because what we want them to try to avoid is staying in the ivory tower. So getting out and getting involved is is extremely important. And this just makes it so wonderful. But the other thing which think, most of you may not think about is historians are so grateful for the act of petitioning over the past however many centuries – And the act of petitioning through ResistBot is something that historians in the future are going to take very, very seriously. It shows us what people are preoccupied with. It shows us what they're passionate about during certain decades, during certain centuries. So as a historian, witnessing the process of this accumulation of evidence is absolutely fascinating and wonderful for me.
0: I'm glad to have you here. Um, I'm wondering if you can start us off as as we... start heading down into the actual petition and topic of the week, which is SSI and, and, uh, the, the petition that we, that we had, um, Melanie, if, if you wouldn't mind, sure. give Joe a rundown of what that actual petition, uh, sounds like that came from Matt Cortland, Matthew Cortland, who is uh, a ResistBot user, um, let Joe know what the what the actual text of that petition sounds like.
2: Sure. And speaking of, well, while we're, because we're already getting um, some questions in, we've got Christine, um, while we were talking, who noted that she feels powerless and she's interested in knowing um, with Resist about how many active users there currently are right now. And Castleberry has given us thanks for um, our hard work and for considering our neighbors as people rather than just numbers. So we're already, you know... Um, And so the the bill that we're reading right now, uh, Susan mentioned earlier, we've already got um, 73,037 signers. We're looking for 75,000, so it's only 19, we're just short 1963, so we're making good strides. And this is what the uh, petition, petition reads. Almost 8 million Americans rely on SSI to meet their basic needs, but for nearly 50 years, public policy has forced those seniors and disabled Americans to live in poverty. I urge you to include in upcoming recovery legislation the long overdue improvements to SSI that President Biden campaigned on. Increase the maximum amount that SSI will provide a disabled beneficiary to live on to at, to at least 100% of the federal poverty line. Currently, SSI provides a maximum of $794 per month to live on, which is far below the cutoff of the federal government... of Far below the cutoff the federal government considers to be poverty. Eliminate the marriage penalty rules that prevent disabled Americans who rely on SSI from marrying their loves. These punitive rules prohibit disabled people from enjoying the dignity and protections of legally valid marriages. Increase the income disregards that haven't been updated in decades and index them to inflation going forward. The SSI program aggressively punishes disabled Americans for earning more than $85 per month in income. If that decades old number had been indexed to inflation, it would be $745 per month today. Increase the SSI asset limit and index it to inflation. Disabled Americans must be allowed to save more than $2,000 without losing vital disability benefits, preventing disabled SSI beneficiaries from saving for emergencies is cruel and counterproductive. Eliminate the cruel and archaic in kind support and maintenance rules that cuts already inadequate monthly benefits by one third for beneficiaries who get help from loved ones such as groceries to ensure they have food to last through the month or a place to stay to get them off the street. Please include these essential improvements that will help millions of seniors and disabled Americans in upcoming recovery legislation. And this was first sent on June 23rd by a uh, hashtag demolish disabled poverty. And again, we're just 1,963 signatures short of our 75,000 signature goal.
0: That's fantastic, thank you Mel. Um, Joe, I mean, I think a lot of people would read that and they would they would support it, but they also may not necessarily understand what they do and do not have straight mentally. Like, I think a lot of times when we hear about an issue, we can only do the best we can in terms of our understanding of it. If you wouldn't mind taking a moment, make sure that we understand the background. How did we get here with SSI? What's what's the history of this? And, and, and essentially, like, what did you hear in this petition that, that rung bells for you?
4: Well, two things have been very important so far. First was when we were introducing everyone what Mel said about different accents and different words being used in different parts of the country, because the, the dispute over language in SSI started in the very beginning, started in the 1930s. And every time the bill bill various bills came up to improve and expand SSI and then later SSDI, the questions about what what does uh, the word unemployment actually mean? What does disability actually mean? And the, the, trying to define disability and trying to define unemployment and trying to fi- define support is uh, was the problems were vast because different regions, different people, different people from different backgrounds believed entirely different things about how what the government should do and and how it should go about doing it. Uh, the second thing is in in the petition that. The, the poverty line uh, language keeps coming up. And that also has been a consistent struggle from the 30s in the 40s, especially in the 50s, uh, in determining what SSI would do and what it would not do. And perhaps more importantly, when it comes to people's actual benefits and as they deal with uh, having to deal with the government, um, what the federal government is responsible for and what states governments are responsible for. That's a constant battle Throughout these decades, well into when President Nixon, for instance, tried to improve things in the seventies, and then they were cut back in the eighties, and when they were tried to the improvements were attempted to made in the in the nineties again. There's all the the legislation and the 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 reform movements within the Congress are always one or two steps behind. Right. So every time they've passed a law or passed an improvement or an amendment or reform. It's often addressing the problems of 10 years ago, not addressing the problems of whatever decade they happen to be in. It's a constant struggle in American political life. It's a constant struggle in uh, uh, attempting to push to have reforms to the government. And it's a very constant and in many ways disheartening struggle between state governments and in the federal government. I could go into the details of, w- of when things happened in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and even up to uh, the 90s, but I think it's more important to realize that that almost everything that you've been talking about so far, all these issues have come up again and again and again each time SSI or SSDRA or any of these other reforms uh, is debated in the, in the halls of government. And by government, I should say the halls of governments, because we have to remember that we are in the United States, we are governed by lots of different or uh, governed at lots of different levels, and they usually don't don't agree with each other.
0: So that is helpful for us to understand. It feels as though there are variables that change that right. are constantly in negotiation, and when whenever we look at a petition such as the one that, that um, Matthew Cortland sent in uh, and, and, you know, our thanks to them and everyone, you know, behind the demolished disabled poverty campaign for, for really getting the word out on this. But Joe, if I'm hearing you, right, the, the conversation that we're having is kind of like the legislation includes these moving target variables mm. and Maybe this is an unfair question because I mean I I'd, I'd prefer to assume that the folks that write these things and negotiate these things are doing it in good faith. But um, well, was there ever a discussion about maybe pegging it to a specific outcome was there Was there a discussion about like it should be able to produce this outcome?
4: Yes, it's often pegged to uh, this. In general, is uh, is often pegged to inflation. It's often pegged to the poverty line, but the problem has has always been, even the first proposed in the '30s, but especially in, in 1956 when there's an attempt to add disability insurance to it, is the idea that certain states, for instance, uh, who don't that aren't very industrial, certain agricultural states or rural states, feel that. Disability, uh, vocational disability, employment uh, disability comes through industrial accidents, uh, right, or okay. industrial problems, industrial the uh, industrial world, and that doesn't apply in Nebraska, or that doesn't apply in Mississippi, and so those senators and congressmen are constantly pushing back against these other uh, these reforms in, in a larger sense, even though exactly the same kind kinds of Accidents, exactly the same kind of disability causes are happening in their own states. They think of it as a northern thing. They think of it as an industrial thing. And so and they're also, in addition to their hesitation to spend money anyway, um, the, the regionalism is, a, is, a, is an almost insurmountable insurmountable problem. So it, te- pegging it to the rate of inflation, pegging it to the poverty line is something that's uh, been debated in the in the five big, periods when this uh, is up, up before the federal government, and each time it comes in uh, two years out of date. By the time
0: the bill actually passes, it's
4: two or three years out of date.
0: So Susan, uh, Mel, is it is it a northern thing? <laughs> Sorry to step on you there, Mel. What were you going to say?
2: No, I've got a question from the audience, actually. We've got uh, Christine, who's a 24-year-old Navy vet, Um, She said that their terms had operational definitions and wanted to know why federal law does not include operational definitions.
0: That feels like a really deep hole that we could go down. I I, I honestly, like I feel as though the point is well taken. I don't know that right. we can answer that because yeah. I mean, like that's that's essentially what I was trying to get to when I said to yeah. Joe, like Joe, oh, you know, is there any sign like uh, one of the gotchas that's been talked about over the years is like, okay, well, how much is a gallon of milk, right? You know, and that's that's a way of identifying whether or not a person understands the impact of policy. And I don't, you know, I, I don't want to keep our our guest waiting any longer. But you know, Christine, your point is well taken. Um, I, I would like. And then there's the reason I'm asking about this being real life and, and, and to outcomes is we're, because we're going to bring on someone who I know for a fact has these conversations about the impacts every single day. His name is Matt Berwick. If we can add him, uh, to our conversation, uh, Matt, come on in. We, uh, We just added our producer who apparently, um, Mel, you're laughing the way I'm feeling. That's fantastic. We're so glad to have you. Congratulations. You made the big show. Good job. You didn't even have to pay your dues. That's pretty solid. So Matt, um, this is one of those times when. I'm going to sort of just give you the floor because you've been listening to what we're talking about. There's a petition that was written by someone who has a firsthand understanding of this, trying to get this fit into the reconciliation bill that's coming up. And I'm not hundred percent convinced that everyone understands the outcomes of policy choices. So you're the president of United Spinal of Western Pennsylvania. Uh, you are constantly in contact with this community. Can you give us a sense of sort of what the real life impact is of of the petition, the the proposed solution, and, and this entire conversation?
5: Yeah, Scott. Um, you know, I, I really appreciate you having me. And, you know, it's it's something that's near and dear. I've been an advocate in the community for a long time, have a spinal cord injury, acquired that at the age of 15. So I was somebody that went through and was a recipient of SSI. Um, and, you know, it's it's amazing how little uh, 700 some dollars goes in a month. Um, and just to think about what you have to pay for. Um, I was a college student when I was on SSI. Uh, so looking at what the cost of a book is in college is just astronomical. Uh, and, you know, I could buy a book and a half with 700 and some dollars. But then you have to look at how do I pay rent? How do I buy food? How do I get to college? Let's talk about that. Um, So the, the small amount of income that people get through SSI is just, it's such an impact on their life because you really have to make strong decisions and strong choices of what am I going to buy? What am I going to be able to afford and what's going to be able to get cut out? Uh, I think another thing that we have to really touch on in the petition is looking at the the marriage equality. Um, and, you know, a lot of people say that we have marriage equality in the United States, but we don't have marriage equality until people with disabilities can get married without having the fear of losing their benefits. Um, you know, and I'm, I, I think I'm a good looking individual, Scott, I don't want you to answer that, but um, <laughs> I, I think I'm a good looking individual and, you know, I, I have to worry every day with, if I find somebody that, also thinks I'm a good looking individual and wants to pursue marriage. And uh, that's something that I have to have the real fear of losing my benefits just because I fall in love and want to go and, and do what everybody else in the community does and get married. Um, so it, it's really, there's so much more impact on this than just the small amount of money that that individuals are able to, um, to interact with. And, and what I will say too is, People with disabilities want to go to work. People with disabilities want to contribute to the community. Um, But as it was mentioned, with SSI, you can only earn such a small amount of money before you're at risk of of losing those benefits. So when we talk to our constituents at the United Spinal Association of Western PA and we ask them, like, what do you want to do? Well, I want to go to work, but why don't you go to work? Well, the, the real fear of the folks that we work with on a daily basis is that they're going to lose their benefits. Uh, so there's so many things that we can unpack through uh, or unpack through the, the changing of this legislation. Um, but we'll just start there. I'm going to stop because I'm sure there are lots of questions. I'm th- sure everybody wants to talk, but uh, that's just going to tee it up for you.
1: Um, Matt, can you just take a moment and explain to us what SSI is um, versus SSDI? I know I struggle sometimes with the acronyms and I'm sure others do as well.
5: Yeah. So SSI, Is Social Security Insurance, so it or Social Security Income, Um, so it is basically what you can get as an individual that has not worked, that has a disability, um, and then you have SSDI, which is where you have work credits. So if you've worked for a long period of time, um, you can essentially get additional income. and And I will throw it over to the great professor if he wants to include anything else about SSI versus SSDI.
0: You are muted, Joe, and I did it to myself a minute ago, so don't (laughs) feel bad.
4: Uh, That's essentially the difference. And I wanna stress again, that constantly the definition of what qualifies as unemployed, what qualifies as disabled, what qualifies as suffering from disability, changes uh, in the the different decades, and sometimes has very drastic regional differences which affect the, the funding of the program, especially at different state levels.
0: I want to throw in the other thing, too, which is, um, Matt, I think you've done a good job of sort of explaining the real life impact of it. But I also think that a lot of the folks that you talk to as a part of United Spinal and you know, the people that lean on you for advice, we need to give them credit also for the fact that they are juggling all of this while also going through vehicle modification or, uh, you know, getting accommodation in school at work. Like, this is not the only task that you get upon, you know, a life change or, or, or you know, a shift in classification, right? Different types of uh, disabled poverty exists because some folks don't have public transit nearby for example some people are just struggling you know to to figure out the new paperwork for you know a new reality uh i know this is something that you do and i know that you do it you know a, a lot on the state level because i, I got uh, to see your work on the mod bill uh if, if you wouldn't mind maybe adding that to the conversation before we open it up to the rest of the panel for questions like Tell us about MOD in Pennsylvania, and I have to stress this is a Pennsylvania effort. But I think this helps to sort of add depth to this conversation.
5: Yeah. So MOD, um, thank you for for giving the opportunity to share a little bit about MOD. So Medical Assistance for Workers with Disabilities, or MAWD, MOD um, is a program for individuals that at one point were eligible for SSI uh, that have gone to work and are able to work and. Mod is essentially a, a premium that is paid to remain on Medicaid. Uh, so that again, that's state program Medicaid, not Medicare. Um, and these are individuals that are working, they're paying a premium, um, and they're able to work because of MOD. So recently in Pennsylvania, uh there were advocates, including myself, who pushed the the state legislature a little harder to say we would like to see changes to mod because there are limitations with mod not as many limitations as with ssi Um, you can earn more you can um, have more income more assets um, but you were still limited and you still weren't able to get married so at the state level we said we want to see changes so act 69 Uh, was recently signed in the state. So that'll open up workers with job success, which will give the opportunity for more income, more assets, um, and the ability to get married because they won't be looking at uh, some other things that are currently looked at. But I think the important thing to note between MOD and workers with job success and SSI is that it is all that same umbrella that we look at. So the um, individuals that are on MOD were at one point an SSI recipient, may continue to be an SSI recipient. Um, so they're still under some of those same uh, challenges that individuals that are on only SSI are impacted by.
2: I just want to uh, tip in and make sure that the audience knows that if you have questions, you can ask us and I'll be sure to uh, filter them through to Matt or um, or the good doctor or, uh, or whoever, just make sure that, you know, you, we want you to be part of the conversation. So join us.
0: Melanie, I appreciate that you're helping me and making him uncomfortable with that. I know how, how much he just wants to be one of the guys after 37 you can do, years of
2: school. You can do so many things with that name. I mean, the fact that he's not going by Dr. Joe Cool is just an abomination. So <laughs> we're going to have know.
0: that conversation in the after party. Uh, I did see there were some people that were looking for where they can sign the petition before um, before we go any farther. So uh, if you're not already familiar with ResistBot, the web address is resist.bot. Uh, if you go there at the top navigation, you'll see petitions. You will see this petition on the front page. Mm-hmm. Uh, using demolished disabled poverty is probably the easiest way to find it. Every resist bot petition though has a code, the code for this one. If you're a, a veteran user with, you know, all of the, all the superpowers it's PSL O a E. That's where you can sign the demolished disabled poverty petition. And uh, I, I'd like to open it up. What what questions does the rest of the panel have? Susan, please go ahead. Uh,
1: I just want to add that um, if you don't remember those particular string of letters, you can do SSI now, S-S-I-N-O-W. Send that to the bot through the text or Twitter, and it will ask you if you want to sign, and it'll pull up the petition. So you can get it to it that way as well.
0: Very good. But did you have a question? You raised your hand and made me think you had a question. (laughs)
1: To just start talking out loud. Um one of the things I wanted to ask um Joe is when you were doing research, do you know how many people are collecting SSI at this point?
4: Oh, I don't know that I don't know contemporary numbers. Uh, I wouldn't know that at all. Uh, I was asked to do the
0: historical.
4: We uh, dug research. into
0: it. It was hard. It was hard to figure out exactly.
4: It, it, yeah, um it, it's it, it's frankly not well it, 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 in the previ- in previous decades, the answer would be not enough because there are an awful lot of people who were for for whatever reason can't work and would not apply either because their state wouldn't administer it under their category or they felt like uh, it wasn't going to be approved anyway. So if I could just give a quick example from the very very beginning, In 1936, dust bowl workers were applying for SSI, saying uh, uh, we're applying for relief, saying we we cannot work. We are, in fact, they used the term "disabled" at that time because the weather, frankly, is has ruined our. Uh, our crop and uh, the agricultural Mm -hmm. world we live in. And so that sense of using disability in the same way or similar ways that I don't have access to public transportation or a hurricane has devastated my area is actually, you know, almost a century old. But also almost a century old, and this also uh, uh, determines numbers, are people in other states, especially congressmen uh, and senators from other states, saying, "Well, that doesn't count as a disability. You were not injured in a in, on the job. You're not injured in a factory. You know, you, the, the you know the, the, the luck of the draw or um, anything like that uh, means you, luck of the draw or you know act of God is does is not going to be covered by SSI or by the government. So it's a it's a constant problem." And it, it, it it's always driven reformers crazy.
0: So we were able to pull up broadly who received benefits from programs administered by the administration. And we can see how many were newly awarded. You know, we can drill down into this and get broad strokes of the numbers, Susan. Uh, but this is where it kind of gets foggy because there are different types of programs and different kinds of, uh, uh, qualifications and categorizations that for the purposes of the conversation, we didn't want to misrepresent this number. So broadly speaking though, we're looking at a total of 69.1 across all SSA programs. But again, you really need to have a good command of all of the, the programs and, and what is the thing that you're digging for and what is not. Um, I think, and, and this is kind of towards the spirit of, of what we've been doing with the show. I'm most interested in the conversation about Matt and, and people like Matt, and, and then Matthew that wrote the petition, who is a, a different Matt, just a coincidence there, um, talking about things like, well, I don't know if I can actually buy a textbook, or I don't know if I can get married. Mm-hmm. And by the way, Matt, I feel I feel compelled that I should tell you it's not just about whether or not someone finds you attractive, but I feel like we should tackle this in a separate podcast and a separate live stream, a different time. Happy to come back, Scott.
5: Yeah.
0: Well, you know, I I I laid in wait for the right moment to bring that back. Um, so while we discuss this, though, like I, I'm I'm curious. My my big burning question is. The, the people in your orbit, the people that you are directly talking to on the daily basis, right? What are the top notes of those conversations? What do they say to you when they first get the flurry of papers of, oh, well, here's SSI. Here's how you fill it out. Here's the office you need to go to.
5: What what are the immediate knee-jerk reactions from those people? So I, I think it's uh, amounting to a full-time job. Uh, having a disability and trying to figure out the paperwork and the process. And even when you get to become an SSI recipient, the limitations that you have, it's literally juggling 12 different things at the same time. And oh, by the way, these are people with disabilities as well. And they have to think about home and community-based services. They have to think about going to their doctor's appointments. Um, And oh, I don't wanna figure out or don't wanna try to figure out or can't figure out you know, what is earned income versus unearned income? And how does that impact my ability to be an SSI recipient? Um, And does the $20 that my grandmother gave me for Christmas count towards my income? Or is that counting towards what SSI is going to be looking at? So really, it's it becomes a full time job just balancing uh, SSI recipient, being an SSI recipient, um, and figuring out what your life looks like at that point. So I think that's really where it starts. Is the amount of paperwork just for seven hundred and some dollars a month is? I'm going to use the word ridiculous.
2: We're um, we're getting some feedback from the audience. Uh, Christine's sister had been f- receiving SSI for forty years. Had and her one of her aunts passed, left her an inheritance, and now she's disqualified from benefits and doesn't know what to do. And I'm imagining that she's not the first, won't be the last, who's just kind of, you know, because after that, you're kind of left floundering for what comes next. Because even I would imagine even with an inheritance, even if it's temporarily sizable, does that mean that they have to, once that's exhausted or whatever, go back through the whole process again?
1: Well, and, and to that point as well, I know that, you know, even if the inheritance is not sizable, my understanding um, just from in different things that I've read is the, the amount of savings you're about, you're allowed to have is $2,000. So, you know, so even if you do get $20 a month from grandma, um, you know, your ability to save that over time at some point, that little tiny savings can cut you off from benefits. And I understand that that's a big push is to raise that. And so that you can have some kind of rainy day fund or a gift from a family member to use for a future expense.
2: It always gives me the feeling that it's just enough to keep you under. You're never supposed to be okay. It's almost like the, the programming is to make sure you remain othered and never have this full quality of life just because of, you know, the, by definition of being disabled, you're, you're not supposed to be doing well. And it's, it's, it's kind of sick. My, my and, and I
1: agree. I think, you know, and it I think it flies in the face of what the purpose was when social security insurance or income was created was to keep people out of poverty, but yet the benefits that they receive keep them below the poverty level. So, you know, it flies in the face of its creator's intent,
4: too. Yeah. Uh, can I just jump in on here when we talk about things like the creator's intent? And uh, because there is very, you're, you're absolutely right, there is a very strong uh, purpose behind these things to keep people above the poverty level. That's the creator's intent. But what happens when the legislation is passed, and then even worse when it trickles down to the state level, is this constant um mm-hmm. flow of keeping people it, othered i think the othered is exactly the way 100%. it is described and in his, just one more historical point if you're lucky enough so to speak to be born in an episcopal for instance community where there is where there was i'm saying this is in the history now where there was a lot of support for disabled things or, or unemployment or all kinds of things Through your Episcopal Church or what what different kind of churches, that was that was wonderful. And often in the fifties, especially, depending on again what state you lived in, that didn't they didn't ask. Okay, are you receiving benefits from your church or receiving benefits from any private organization? Mm -hmm. Whereas other states did. And so there's nothing. One of the just most distressing things about all this is it's nothing. There's nothing American about it. It's we live in these 50 different little uh, fiefdoms, and it's just so if you're lucky enough to be born into a a family that belongs to a church that has a a good support and that doesn't report that support to the government, then fine. And and a a constant the second thing is a constant complaint among witnesses brought before these congressional committees, especially 50s, 60s, and 70s, is. The, all the, all these regulations and all these limits and all this othering. I just can't stress how important that othering is. It's people they don't use the term othering back then, but what they say is it, it's encouraging us to be dishonest about mm-hmm. any help that we're receiving, mm-hmm. or, or try to hide it. We're trying to tell you what's what we're what's what's going on, and every time we say that my, I got a hundred dollars for Christmas rent, you know, the, the, the penalty is not worth, it's not worth to being, it's not worth being honest. And, and that, that's a testimony from people from, you know, 50, 60 years ago. And it's consistent throughout.
0: Matt, last question for you. And thank you for your time. Tell me about the thought of moving to a different state. Have you thought about it? I mean, is this something you've looked into or, or people that United Spinal has asked you to, to, or or that you support like tell me about that thought process
5: Uh, scott i will uh, i will say as somebody that is currently in western pa and the last three days have been torture because it's been cold um, and snow is absolutely coming and i hate it um i have seriously considered moving to other states but then you have to think about the state programs that uh, i am currently receiving and again mod being a, a pa uh legislation pa uh law if you will um having to do the amount of research to figure out what does that state look like? How are home and community-based services allocated in that state? Mm -hmm. Um, There is no equity across the 50 states of what it looks like to be a person with a disability in Pennsylvania, Florida, Arizona. I think I got everybody's state in there, DC. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, it it really is, there's no chance of moving uh, unless I want to just cancel all of my benefits and start over at zero Mm -hmm. uh, in my new state. Great. But I'm not moving anytime soon, Scott. So we will see you in person soon.
0: Well, at least it's much, much easier to get a job when you're disabled. Um, yes. Of course. <laughs> Thank you for your time and your your care with us in understanding this, that, you know, that is not our daily life. Uh, we appreciate you being our very first guest here on Reset Spot Live for the, for the real shows. A little quiet applause for you so I don't... Do it into the microphone and deafen everyone that's listening. But uh, thanks for making your appearance.
5: Absolutely happy to represent Pennsylvania. Thanks, Matt.
0: I I know we have more to talk about this next week. We're going to continue this topic with next week's show. But I'm I'm really heartened by the fact that everyone here basically is nodding along with each other. And saying like, "Wow, that's interesting." And and now I, I didn't see all the comments, but am I right in feeling like the comments are pretty much nodding along with us?
2: Yes, it was a lot of. Um, there there were a lot of folks who were in agreement. We've um, we've got Paula who was definitely sharing her agreement with the concept of how ridiculous the um, the limitations that are placed on people who receive this aid is. It's because it it prevents them from what quote unquote the American dream is supposed to be. And that's not, Mm -hmm. there was no language that just limited it to people without disabilities. So it's, I mean, it's just absurd. So we're getting a lot of folks who right now are in line with, with where we are with the topic.
0: And big credit to you and producer Anna for pulling those together because we're live streaming across multiple channels right now. So you all are actually pulling comments from the Facebook feed, the Twitter feed, the YouTube feed, and the Twitch feed simultaneously. And I really appreciate how nicely you've done that on this first voyage, this maiden voyage of the ResistBot Live Vessel. Um, The the next thing I'd like to do, if we can... um, before we go, let's let's talk a little bit about what other stories are cooking out there, what we have our eye on national stories of note. I think you can watch any any Sunday show, any news program right now. And and here some of the, the big loud ones. You know we know that there are there are budget things happening. There's a reconciliation vote. There's an infrastructure vote. Those kinds of things. But as far as this group is concerned, what else do you have your eye on, Athena? I know you've got something you know lined up for this because we actually talked about it quite a bit yesterday when we were you know getting ready for today's show.
3: Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, there's never a lack of any issues that we need to discuss, and we have a, a great amount of of work that needs to happen. So in, in terms of what I'd like to see coverage, I'd like to see us uh, do a little bit more uh, to highlight the people doing work on the border. I think the crisis with what's happening with Haitian migrants who are attempting to seek asylum and their deportation, effective deportation to Guantanamo is uh, is a problem. So I think we should definitely try to Get some experts to share some thoughts on that and what can we do as Americans to, you know, make sure that asylum is a human right that is granted to those seeking it.
0: And and it's a it's a international law that we all signed together. Um, You know, this group here, we do content meetings. I, I really feel as though we originally planned on talking about the line three topic after we were done with uh, demolished disabled poverty. But I really feel that we should move up the immigration and asylum discussion so that that's what comes next, Um, especially given what you just mentioned about uh, the Haitian migrants that are, according to just what little I'm exposed to, what I'm able to read, it seems as though they have filed for asylum and have a historical sort of track record that they don't always get equal treatment when compared to people coming from other places. And I do think that that should be part of our uh, asylum and integra- immigration uh, conversation. And I'd like that maybe to be our second topic. Uh, so that's what I would like for us to talk about in our upcoming content meeting. Uh, other topics that people are keeping their eye on right now in the in the national news that everybody would be able to tune into. Anything?
4: Well, if I may just jump in and continue this theme, I've, I've been hammering home is that this this problem of regionalism and the problem of different rules in different states, the whole problems of the electoral, the the, the new electoral uh, discrimination that's been going on in different states in the country is just shocking, and it's very and it's a, a, a serious problem for political scientists, for historians, and we're all all of us from all sorts of political stripes. Within those two professions are just, shock, uh, you know, in shock that these things are happening. And again, it brings this question up to me: what What does it mean to be an American? Because being an American in New York is, and and being able to express yourself politically is an entirely different thing than being an American in Texas now and going
0: forward. I Agree with that.
1: I agree. Uh, voting, and you know that interestingly what I've seen is how COVID is so interrelated with the voting legislation and the um, border issue and, you know, how that ties into, I think we're going to see that in a lot of other issues and concerns too, how much COVID plays a part in those topics.
2: I I agree. And I think kind of tying in with both um, Susan and and Athena and how even with this border crisis with Haitian migrants, how I think it was Jen Pisaki who was like, well, this isn't a great time to come. It's never a great time to seek okay. asylum. So we need to discuss why there are different rules applied. I think it kind of mm-hmm. ping pongs with all of you why there are different rules depending on who needs the aid. Mm-hmm. So um, I think we should really, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to covering all of that. Corey Bush no, you, bring just, up,
0: you bring up something interesting right there, in just the fact that uh, you can you can definitely see not everyone who you would think would be aligned on a topic is not aligned on it. That's what was interesting about Jen Pazakis' comments to me. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I, no, I was same.
3: just that was me. I was just going to say Cory Bush actually just retweeted this idea that there are over six hundred thousand um, undocumented Canadians in the United States, mm-hmm. and yet we don't see whips and horses on the Canadian Ever. And that boils down to the color of their skin. Mm-hmm.
2: So that's and just just the, the fact that I'm looking at whips and horses in mm-hmm. 2021 is mind blowing, and the them focusing on well, we're not going to use horses anymore. Are you going to be like, are you going to right. like, have that's whips outside of a Chevy half ton? Like, I don't mm-hmm. care about the horses, right?
0: And and they, I'm they really sad, I'm sad to
4: say that uh, that that there's there's a great historical precedence of that sort of. Behavior mm-hmm. by, uh, by government is. forces and mm-hmm. immigration policy in the United States. So we so have our work cut out for
0: us. Yes, yeah, I was going to say, that's what we're going to have to work on. You've read my mind, theater. That's exactly what I was going to say. Like, we have a lot to do. So uh, let's wrap it up very quickly. Uh, where you're going to be, what you're promoting, you know, what is your favorite charity? Take it away. Susan Stutz, how about if you start us off? What do you want people to turn their attention to on your behalf before we meet next Sunday?
1: Um, where, so we're coming to the very last days of September, and September is Suicide Prevention Month, and that's that, that's across the country. And one of the organizations that I think has been really doing very good work in that regard, and I've been following them for years, is called, um, makes me choke up, uh, To Write Love on Her Arms. And I encourage you to go to their website. It's T T W L O H A. And read the founder's story about the young lady um, with whom his entire platform began. And, you know, we all know someone
2: who has
1: a mental health challenge. We all do. Whether, you know, it's depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, something more profound than that. And um, it's, I encourage you to take a look at it.
0: I promise I will. And I think everyone here will. And thank you for sharing. Melanie.
2: I am doing work with the Katrina List. Um, it's in conjunction with the Katrina National Memorial Foundation, um, establishing a museum for Hurricane Katrina, where we're focusing on, um, on residents of the Gulf Coast. I'm a New Orleans native. and expanding exactly not only the there's been 16 years since Hurricane Katrina and it's more than just what happened then we've got 16 years of people living life and still trying to recover mm-hmm. from from what happened in 2005 so we are doing a lot of work to get a a facility built for that discusses um economic that that handles addresses climate justice as well as the actual stories behind these people who were affected by the storm. So, and, and how that ties into what we're still dealing with today, 16 years ago, 16 years later with Hurricane Ida. So um, the KatrinaList.org, I would highly recommend everybody go there.
0: And I just wanna call attention again, at the top of the show, you said you had to, you had to evacuate from your home in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And, and I you get the Trooper Award for, Showing up on the show from a place that's not even really where you live—you know, from Phoenix, Arizona—you came and you just—I I, I truly appreciate it. Thank you.
2: I'm glad to be here. Thank
0: you, Athena. What do you? Uh, what do you want to turn people's attention toward?
3: So um, so many great organizations out there. I think, uh, given what's, um, how a lot of our conversations are basically coming down to this concept of equal justice in the United States. Um, I would like to call attention to Brian Stevenson's organization, the Equal Justice Initiative. It's a nonprofit based base in Montgomery, Alabama that provides legal representation to prisoners who may have been wrongly convicted of crimes and um, ensuring that poor prisoners have uh, effective representation and not denied a fair trial when it comes down to it. So um, it, slavery, well, I would say genocide is America's original sin, but slavery is up there as well. So anything that our listeners and users can do to look up these resources and support organizations that are trying to address these issues in the United States is appreciated.
0: Thanks, Athena. Professor Buzzkill, Joe Kuhill, where do you want to turn people's attention? Well,
4: I work with a company, well, the, with, the, uh, the, with a charity called Basic Health International, and the, the um, The goal of Basic Health International is to try to eliminate cervical cancer worldwide. It's a a marvelous organization. They're working very hard. Cervical cancer is entirely preventable. And the things they're doing for screening and for treatment for women, particularly in low-resource countries, is just fantastic. Please go to basichealth.org. And contribute to them they they have all sorts of things through global giving and other things that where your funds can be matched and it's a it's something that it, it's one of these things that we can actually accomplish something wonderful within 10 or 20 years so please basichealth.org basichealth all one world .org. and and we, cervical cancer is, is is completely treatable completely uh, can be can be eliminated worldwide, and that's what they want to do. And if anyone wants to know about anyone wants to hear a little history, go to ProfessorBuzzkill.com dot com and and follow my podcast.
0: Joe, uh, and you're another one that, that definitely juggled some things this week. Uh, I, I know you had some some family pressure this week, and thank you so much for making the uh, making the appearance. We we definitely appreciate it. My spotlight is going to be from my good friend, Matt Berwick, who showed up on the show this week, United Spinal. Actually, is Matt still in the green room? Put him up. I, uh... Matt, why don't you take my plug? Let's talk about United Spinal just for a moment.
5: Yeah, thanks, Scott. So uh, United Spinal, great organization for people with spinal cord injuries and diseases of the spinal cord. Uh, our national organization, unitedspinal.org. Uh, you can find more information about the Western PA chapter or uh, Western Pennsylvania chapter. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook and just search for United Spinal of Western PA um, or uh, USAWPA is where you can find more information about us.
0: All right. That is our panel. This is our show. I want to thank everyone for tuning in. Uh, You know, another quiet applause for getting through here. We all survived the experience. I think the, the conversation was useful. Hopefully if it you know, if it wasn't, someone will yell at us and let us know. But um, um, again, I, I said this at the early, uh, at the early go. Um, we're not experts. We are trying to learn these topics. We're trying to be of, of service. Everyone here has a job and has a uh, a career and a path that they are on already. But we believe in Resist.Bot. We believe in what's going on around this, this organization. We would encourage you, if you'd like to join us, pop into Resist.Bot. You can volunteer, you can donate, and by all means, text RESIST to 50409. If you have not done that already, you are missing out and you've only got probably half the story because the, the, the journey starts with how easy it is to actually reclaim your country, to be engaged and still manage all of the other commitments that you've made. Again, the job, the kids, the pets, the chores, and the dry cleaning that needs to be picked up uh, are all completely balanceable when we've got a, a slicker user face to government and we can track sort of what our neighbors are interested in, what's going on. Producer Anna, if you would be kind enough to give us the outro, let's say goodbye. Resistbot and Resistbot Live are nonprofit efforts made possible by our volunteers and charitable donors. Join us by visiting resist.bot and follow us all over social media under the Resistbot name. Technical production for Resistbot Live is managed by Chris Erickson, with help from Jesse Peters and Anna McTaggart. Contributors appearing on the show include Susan Stutz, Athena Foulé, Melanie Dion, Dr. Joseph Kuhill, Christine Liu, and me. Scott McTech. Every installment of ResistBot Live begins as a live stream at 1 p.m. Eastern Time on Sundays, on YouTube, Twitch, Facebook, and Twitter. If you miss the live stream, video replays are available at those same destinations. Audio replays are available wherever you get your podcasts. The music at the beginning and end of the show is provided by the artist, Punch Deck. The opening track is called The Sound Consumes. This track is called Persistence. Both tracks are available for purchase and download at punchdeck.bandcamp.com.